Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Luke chapter 12, which is not Romans. (laughs) We're going to take a a break from our series through Romans. We just finished chapter 12 last week, and right after the service today, I am going to be driving to the airport and flying to California for a conference um, that I'm going to be at all week, and I'm also going to tag team that trip out to California for this conference to a visit to my folks. So I'll be gone next Sunday, and then we'll pick back up in Romans chapter 13 uh, two weeks from today. And that's an important text. It's about a Christian's relationship with the government and governing authorities. And so um, there's lots for us to think about that I think is really practical and important for us. This morning, um, as we've done throughout our series through Romans, I want to take a little break and look at uh, a scene in the Gospels, uh, uh, really a teaching of Jesus, where he is, he is uh, in, in a way, I think, giving uh, legs and hands and feet to, to the gospel, the doctrine that we've been looking at for the past few years in Romans. And we're going to see how the glorious gospel that we have been, have been staring at in Romans actually should be fleshed out in, in our lives in this beautiful It's beautiful instruction from Jesus. Um, uh, One little thing, I just have to say this. This is a bit personal, so indulge me, if you will. Uh, My family, at least my wife and my second oldest son, are not here today uh, because my second son, Jacob, is actually preaching at another church in town. Um, They've asked him to preach, and it's like a little youth Sunday, and so he's preaching at Rose Hill Baptist today. And um, I'm, I'm really thankful for that opportunity for him. I wish I could be there. but um, So I'm going to pray for Jacob here in just a moment um, uh, that, that that would go well. Um, and then we have the great privilege today after we look at the word, as is our custom on the first Sunday of the month, to gather around the table and to receive communion. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a member of this church, if you're a member of a, a like-minded church, you're welcome to come to this table, and to feast on Christ with us. That's what we want to do today as we sing, as we pray, as we look at his word, as we come to the table. Our goal is to feast on Christ this morning. So um, let me pray. Lord, thank you for your grace to us. You are our refuge, a very present help in time of trouble. You are our portion, Lord. We want to say in line with the psalmist that there's nothing on earth that we desire besides you, O God, because you are enough. Remind us of that today, Lord. Block out distractions. Help us, Lord. We're distracted people. We're weak people. Our minds and our hearts are cluttered with a thousand different things. Help us, Lord. Help us. Help us to not go through religious motions, but help us to stare at the beauty of the gospel in your word. Lord, fan into flame our affections for you this morning. For my friends in this room who don't know you, Lord, save them, Lord. Do a miracle and give faith, God, to people whose hearts are dead. Lord, save people this morning. 
Lord, I pray for my son Jacob. I pray that he would preach the gospel today, that he would encourage the saints, that this would be a good experience for him and that he would taste and see that the Lord is good and that the people would as well. Lord, help us as we look at this text. Speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we read this text in Luke 12, let me ask you a question. What are you worried about? What are you worried about? Will that check bounce? Why has no one responded to my email? That was an important thing I said, and yet nobody, nobody's, nobody's said anything back. Will anyone ever ask me out on a date? Will I ever get married? Will my children be successful? Will they make the team? Will they get the part? Will they be liked by their peers? Is this lump I feel anything serious? What will the biopsy report say? Will my spouse be safe on deployment? Am I making a terrible mistake in the way I'm parenting? What if he leaves me? What if she leaves me? What if I don't make it through ranger school? What if people leave the church? What if they don't like the way I lead? Is there some flaw in my personality? Will I have enough to live on in retirement? What happens if a tree falls on my house this afternoon in the storm? What are you worried about? Well, maybe you weren't worried about anything until I read those questions, and now you're like, I, actually, I am worried. Thanks, <laughs> Pastor. I came to get encouraged today. Jesus has, in Luke chapter 12, a word for the worried. So I want us to read this beautiful passage in Luke 12. Before I do that, let me give you the outline of, of how we're going to work through this text. Uh, this is a rare sighting at Crosspoint this morning. I have three points, and they are alliterated. I know, alliterated sermons at Crosspoint are kind of like Sasquatch sightings. They are rare, <laughs> but they do occasionally happen. So I want to give it to you today so you can just follow along. Here, here's three things that I want us to see in the text. The, the futility of worry, the faithfulness of God, and the freedom of of reordered affections. The futility of worry, the faithfulness of God, and the freedom of reordered affections. Friends, let me read this text to us. And even the words as Jesus is speaking them and they're recorded by Luke are, are, are a sermon in themselves. Just let's stare at the word as, as I read it. Verse 22, And he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet... God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Worry is futile. I want us to see the futility of worry. What is worry? What do we mean by worry? Now, we're not talking about a healthy and wise concern or preoccupation with things that are obviously dangerous. Kids, if you're in here, you should look both ways before you cross the street, right? There's a reason why there are some signs that say, do not touch. I can remember a few years ago, speaking of a storm, a tree fell on a power line out in front of our house. We kind of live out in the country a little bit. And there was this broken power line that was laying on the ground off of this utility pole. And our power had obviously went out and somebody from Diverse Power is based up in LaGrange had come down and this line is laying on the ground in the front yard of my house, kind of a, a little ways from the house. And I had mistakenly thought that this cable, which looked like just a support cable, wasn't the actual power cable. And so I just kind of picked it up and moved it before the utility guy got there. And the utility guy got there, and he's fixing it, and it was this young guy. He was like in his early 20s. I mean, I was almost old enough to be his dad. And he, he was saying, I was telling him kind of, oh, yeah, I was saying, I moved it over here. And he says, you touched this? And I was like, you know, he was talking to me like he was my daddy. And I was like, yeah, man, isn't that just kind of the pole, the, the, the cord, the, the, the metal thing that holds the pole? And he goes, no, that's the actual electrical cord. And if the breaker hadn't tripped on River Road, you would have been dead before you hit the ground. Sir, never touch that again. <laughs> I was like, yes. So there, you know, I learned my lesson. I'm not touching anything that might have an electrical current go through it. I'm not talking about healthy and wise precaution. Worry at its core is a lack of confidence in the fatherhood of God. 
Worry at its core is a lack of trust and confidence in who God says He is as our Father. Now, we may dress it up and act like it's us just being concerned and ultra-responsible, but worry at its core is a lack of confidence in God. What are some, some causes of worry? I, I, this is, I was meditating on this here towards the end of the week. I, I've kind of put it in two categories. I think kind of one category of a, of a general cause of worry is, a, is a, just a general worldly-mindedness. And by worldly-mindedness, I'm not, I'm not talking about a kind of obvious carnality. When we, when we hear that word worldly, we think of people that are just kind of living completely for themselves with no concern for God. Certainly that's part of it. But a worldly-mindedness is an inordinate absorption with these 80 or 90 years, the cares of this world. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13 as he's explaining this parable of the the sower and the four types of soil. And he says about one particular soil that proves itself not to be good soil. He says in Matthew 13 verse 22, As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world... Or worry, undue worry, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So this kind of absorption with what happens as if we're forgetting the sovereignty of God and we're clinging to this world with a kind of worldly mindedness, and this causes worry. And even God's people certainly are prone to this at times. And then secondly, I think another general cause of worry category of worry is just flat out disobedience and rebellion against God, whether we are aware of it or not. Listen to this rebuke of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Look at the consequences of their rebellion against God. Look what is the fruit of the root of their disobedience against God. He says in Deuteronomy 28 verse 64 and 65, and the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Verse 65, and among these nations you you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. I think that's a description of the worry that is the consequence of being separated from God because of our rebellion. These are the causes of worry. What are some of the consequences of worry? It leads us away from God. Psalm 37 verse 8 says, Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Proverbs 12 verse 25, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. And then listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. And I want us to classify our worry that we often baptize in religious feelings as a kind of vanity. And I'm not talking about the type of vanity of us sort of staring in the mirror, you know, pimping and looking like, uh, what's the word, primping, pimping, whatever. (laughs) It just sounded wrong when it came out. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) 
standing in the mirror, looking at ourselves, thinking how wonderful we look. That, that's not the type of vanity I have in, in mind here because if that's all we believe vanity is, we miss the deeper root of how vanity can actually grip our hearts because at its core, worry is a kind of vanity. It's a kind of self-absorption. It's forgetting God. It's, 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 it's making the things of this world big and shrinking God, which is a kind of pride, which is vanity. It's the consequence of worry. Look at our text again. Look at what Jesus says in Luke 12. Look at verse 25. He says, And which of you, by being anxious, which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his span of life? I think Jesus is telling us there clearly Worry is folly. It, it won't help. You can't add hours to your day or inches to your height. It, it doesn't work. It's foolish. Folly or worry devastates discipleship. And as we'll see in a moment, it suffocates generosity. In fact, this is coming on the end. What's going on in Luke chapter 12 is that Jesus is, 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 is really, he's pressing in and he's talking about what it means to follow him. And right before the passage that we re, we're focusing on here in Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34, right before that, Jesus gives this parable about this rich man who was having a really prosperous season and he had so much that he needed another barn. And he's, he's the rich man speaking to himself in Luke chapter 12. And he says, man, things are, and I'm paraphrasing here, things are going so good. I think I'm going to build some more barns to store more of my stuff in. And so tonight it's going so awesome. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. And God speaks to that fool and he says, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. What good are those storehouses going to do? And so in light of this self-absorption, now Jesus is telling his people, don't be worried. And we're going to see at the end of our text how, how letting go of this world, letting go of our stuff is one of the cures for our worry. And when we don't do that, it suffocates the gospel generosity that God intends for his people. And it smothers the aroma of the gospel in the lives of believers. Friends, worry is futile. Secondly, let's look at this text. It tells us about the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. Look, look at our text again. Look at, look, at verse, look at verse 24. Jesus says in verse 24, Consider the ravens. And it's interesting that he would use ravens as an example because in the Old Testament, at least to first century Jewish ears, ravens would have been an unclean bird. Something that was, you know, don't touch that type of bird. But consider the ravens, this kind of lowest of creation. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Jesus is pointing us to the faithfulness of God. Look, look what he says in verse 27. He says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Have you ever toiled? Have you ever tossed and turned? And he's saying these, these simple 
creations of God, lilies, they, they don't do that. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. In other words, these lilies are so beautifully arrayed by God that even Solomon, this rich man, couldn't compare to the, to the detail and the beauty that God takes in crafting one little lily that is here today and gone tomorrow. Verse 28, but if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Friends, I think that is super clear. And I think that one thing that we need to do to, to work this text is just to stare at that passage and just consider the faithfulness of God. I think what Jesus is saying there is clear is that you can trust your Father. For those of you who worry, which I am making the pastoral assumption that at one point or another, it is all of us. It's all of us. This is, you know, this is not one of those sermons where you're like, man, I wish Johnny was here. I'm going to send a podcast to Susie. No, no, this is, friends, this is me. I am a worrier. And you know what? I've talked to enough of you, and I think, I think we all are to varying degrees. And the cure for this is meditating on the faithfulness of God. Jesus is lifting our eyes. He's saying, look at these created things, these birds, these flowers, this grass. They're nothing. How do we work these things into our lives? I think we need to learn the biblical discipline of setting aside time to recall God's goodness in our lives, to remember. One thing that might be, now that you have extra time because you're not coming to the member meeting, and certainly it's going to be sunny and 75 out this evening, do a word search on the word remember in the Old Testament. The times that God calls his people to remember. Listen, listen to this scene in Joshua chapter 4. So... God's people have been wandering in the desert for 40 years under the leadership of Moses. Moses has rescued God's people from Egypt, from Egyptian captivity. They've wandered in the desert for 40 years. Moses, this great leader, has died. Now there's this young man, Joshua, that has been raised up as Moses' successor. And they're on the edge of the promised land, but there's this obstacle, and the obstacle is the the Jordan River, not the Jordan River, the Jordan River. <laughs> Sorry, just a little insider. And we're going to see where God really, with this river, recreates the Red Sea crossing by again causing God's people to cross over a huge body of water miraculously. And then look at what he tells Joshua to do as they cross over, Joshua chapter 4, starting in verse 1, when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, 
and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial or a remembrance forever. Do you see what God is doing? He's, he's giving them a, a physical object and he's saying, pick it up and let this be a reminder of how faithful God is and was and will be to you because there will be times when you in the future and successive generations will doubt the goodness of God. And he's saying, remember. We see a very similar thing in, in 1 Samuel chapter 7. God has helped Israel miraculously. He's defeated the Philistines in this latest encounter. And then we see in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, this beautiful verse. It says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Sheen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. And that's what that word Ebenezer means, a stone of help. You know that song we sing, Here I raise my Ebenezer? And you were wondering if you were a kid, like, what is that? Is that like Ebenezer Scrooge from the Christmas movie? No, it's a biblical word that means the, the stone of help. Again, God is giving Israel a kind of physical object to remind them because he knows that we are prone to worry. And what we need to do is reorient our lives to the faithfulness of God. Friends, I think the application for this is just very, very simple. Not easy, but simple. We need to take time, carve out time in our lives to remember the faithfulness of God. That is the antidote to worry. We take time to plan everything else. We plan vacations. We plan hunting seasons. We plan sporting events. In fact, get this, get this. Uh, Logan Copley is helping me as my assistant. It's been such a blessing before they go to Serbia. Um, and Logan is helping me with scheduling. Um, and so by the way, if you get an email from Logan that says Brad wants, I just want, I'm, Logan's just helping me schedule meeting with men in the church. And I said, Logan, when you email people, tell them that I want to meet with them, don't scare them like they're getting called to the principal's office. It's like, you know, you know just Brad wants to like hang out with you. Um, but Logan's helping me, helping me schedule. And I looked ahead of my schedule because I wanted to know when the Masters Golf Tournament would, would, would be that Sunday afternoon. That's like a month from now, month and a half from now. But I blocked out that Sunday afternoon. And you know how many times in my life I have actually played golf? Probably less than 10. I'm a terrible golfer. But I like to watch Sunday afternoon at the Masters. And I planned for it. And guess what? My calendar is blocked out. Friends, if I can block out my calendar to watch some men hit a little white ball and chase it, <laughs> then, then certainly we can take time to raise up stones of remembrance in our life. Right now, dads in this room, husbands in this room, moms in this room, young people in this room, in whatever context you are in, we can take time. What, 
right now, there is no magic eight ball. There's no silver bullet. There's no, there's no pixie dust that can, you can sprinkle on your life and just make worry go away. But there are means of grace that God points us to in the Bible. And one of them is right now setting aside time, planning to set aside time to talk together with your family or loved ones about how good God has been. Remember, remember how good he's been. The Psalms, read, do a word search for remember. Remember, if it were not the Lord who were on our side, we would have been swept away, the psalmist says. The faithfulness of God. He's a good father. And he, he wants to remind his children of his fatherhood. Look at, verse, look at verse 29 and 30. Just to get this fatherly nature of God towards his people. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Your Father knows you need them. Not just a sovereign God, but your Father knows that you need them. We need to remember the faithfulness of God. And finally, and this is where I think the beautiful just the glory in this text is, is we need to see the freedom of reordered affections. Let me read verses 32 through 34 again. Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And that word kingdom there I think means more. Don't think so much of a physical place of heaven, although I think certainly that's 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 bound up in that, that word there, kingdom. But kingdom is not just merely something in the future, but it's also the rule and the reign of God here now. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Christian life is, is longing for heaven as we're pulling heaven's reign down in our life now as we're being drawn to that place where we know we will be forever. Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And look at Jesus, look at Jesus' logic about being this type of person, this, this God-centered, heavenly-minded, kingdom, rule, and reign now in my life type of person. It frees us to, as he says in verse 33, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is pointing, pointing us to the freedom of reordering the affections of our heart from these 80 years to God's rule and reign in our life now and beyond. There's this Catholic philosopher. His name is Peter Kreeft. And he has written some interesting books. One, he wrote a book. It's called Heaven. And there's a quote in that book that, that has just captivated, captivated me for several years. I've read it before in various contexts. Now, I certainly wouldn't endorse everything that Peter Kreeft writes. I think he's a good man as far as I know, but I'm certain, certain there would be some disagreements doctrinally because um, he, he is a Catholic philosopher. But he, he wrote this quote in his book, Heaven, which to me is just captivating. L listen to this scene that Kreeft describes. He says... Now, suppose both death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose the fight was fixed. 
Suppose, by the way, they are. (laughs) All that's true. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw with indubitable certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, I would include there your worry, you could have free for the asking your whole crazy heart's deepest desire, heaven, eternal joy. Would you not return fearless and singing? What can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny, less a scratch on a penny. Now, there's much more I'd want to say, I'd want to add. It's not just this place. It's, it's Christ. It's, it's God who we are going to. God is the gospel. God is who we desire, not just this place. But you see the point that, that he's pointing us to, that if we have all of that, what, what, do, what are we fearing losing? If we have all that there is to have, then how vain, how trivial, how futile is worry. But friends, let's not believe it because, because Kreeft has, has written it in a book. Let's believe it because the Bible tells us so. Look again. Just look. Let's, let's read 32 through 34 again in our text. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, to give you his rule and reign. So in light of that, Let go of the things that you're gripping. Verse 33, sell your possessions, give to the needy, live in this open-handed way, Jesus is saying. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. In other words, seek spiritual treasure, treasure, not stuff that rots away, with treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where, verse 34, your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is telling us because all is yours, because you have a good father who it's his good pleasure to give this to you, then what are these 80 years? You're free now. You're free because you have it all. I know we've stepped out of Romans, but Romans is like a magnet and it just, it keeps calling me back, right? So let's go to Romans chapter eight as we conclude here and let's see Paul's reasoning. Eventually everything just kind of ends up in Romans eight, it seems like, doesn't it? Listen to Paul's logic here. This is logic that will will starve worry if we see it. Paul has laid out the gospel. Jesus has given himself. He's borne the wrath of God. He's made us alive. He's promised that we will be with him forever. Verse 30 ends in this beautiful beautiful, uh, truth that those whom God has predestined, he's also called, and those whom he's called, he's also justified, and those whom he's justified, he's also glorified, which is interesting. We've made this point a lot here, that our glorification, which from our perspective is a future event, is so certain. In other words, being with God forever in eternity, that future glorification is so certain that Paul can speak of it in the past tense. So all is yours. So then Paul concludes with a rhetorical question in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, why worry? He who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So if you have the greatest prize in the universe and God has given it to you through Christ, right standing with him, he's given us his son to reconcile him, then how will he not also give you everything else that you truly need? Now, if, if that's all that the Bible said about what God will give us, then we might be thinking, well, God's going to give me all things here and now. But as we read on, we realize that sometimes Christians will face death and nakedness and peril and sword. And so the all things of verse 32 doesn't necessarily mean temporal blessing. It means all things that we truly need that the good Father will give us, his kingdom, his rule, his reign. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. In other words, remember, we just made the point. It's, it's life on this earth is not all necessarily great for Christians. We're being killed. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, parentheses, or anything else that I'm worried about right now, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when we stare at that, and when we dwell on it, and when we remember God, and when we raise our Ebenezers, what it does is it reorders our affections. It lifts our eyes. It doesn't mean that the things that we're worried about go away, but it does tell us that we have all that there is to have if we have him. So now we come to this, this table here to... to feast on Christ that he has given us. And when we come to this table, what's the connection between receiving communion regularly as a church and fighting worry? When we take this piece of bread and this cup, we, we're staring at this truth that we've looked at, that it is God's pleasure to give you all of himself. He's given you Christ. How will he not bring you all the way home? There's so many things that we need to do when we come to this table. Where do we examine ourselves in light of the gospel? This examination doesn't mean that we look at ourselves and think, oh, you know what? I had a pretty good week. I read my Bible five out of seven days. Um, I didn't snap at anybody in my family. I think I'm, I'm kind of worthy to come to the communion table. No, that's not it, obviously. And if we, On the flip side, if we examine ourselves and we find ourselves having just we're just limping to the table this morning, realize that we, 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 were, we were not serving God like we should. That, that shouldn't push us away. We should examine it. It should cause us to repent, to, to turn away from ourselves afresh and come to the table, not because we need to come back when we've had a good enough week, but we come realizing that nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So we come forsaking ourselves, again confessing our complete dependence upon God and what he has done in Jesus. 
We come discerning the body. We come thinking about one another. We come caring for each other as a family. We come celebrating Christ's victory over sin, death, and the grave. And we come considering what God has done. And we come fighting worry with the good news of the gospel. We come, as 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 says, casting all our anxieties, all our worries, all our cares on Him because He cares for you. What are you worried about? What are you worried about? And think of that thing as, as, as important and as temporarily earthly big as it may be. I want you to think on that thing in your mind and then put it next to these truths that Jesus has laid out for us. The faithfulness of God and the freedom of a reordered heart. Will you not return fearless and singing? That's how we come from this table. That's how we come to it and that's how we come away from it. A word for the worried. God is our good Father, and He has given us all that there is to have. Let's pray. Ushers, if you'd come forward and be prepared to serve us this morning before I pray. Again, if you're a member of this church, a believer in Jesus, part of another gospel-centered church, you're welcome to come to this table. If you're not a believer in Jesus, we don't want you to just get caught up in some sort of tradition. This isn't just something that we're doing at the end of the service as a kind of ritual. This is something that those who are trusting in Jesus, the family of God, God's people, do to remember what Jesus has done in His death, His body being broken for our sin, His blood being spilled for our cleansing, in His resurrection, we are coming remembering the gospel. That's why all these things are true. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus, you shouldn't come to this table, not because we're trying to exclude you or, or make you feel unwelcome, but because we love you enough to tell you that this isn't something that you believe yet or confess, so don't, don't, don't do this. If you're believing in Jesus, come to the table. And if, you're, if you know that you're not a believer and this is causing you to be convicted and realizing, what, what, wait, what does it mean to truly trust in God? I need, I need more explanation for that. Don't leave this room today until you speak to somebody more thoroughly about what it means to follow Jesus. I'm going to pray. And then when we're ready, let's come to the table closest to us and receive and feast on Christ. And as we take the elements, let's hold on to them, and Robert will lead us to receive them together as a faith family. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our worry is futile. We confess that you are more than faithful. And we long for the freedom that comes with having our affections set on your rule and reign in our life. As we feast on Christ this morning, as we remember the cross, as we examine our lives, as we care for one another, as we wait for one another,
as we celebrate Jesus' death until he comes. Lord, calm our anxious hearts and reorder our affections and remind us of how good you are. And may we leave this place fearless and singing. In Jesus' name.